You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hi, everybody, and thank you for joining us for a very special edition of Intelligence Squared U.S., this one hosted at the Comedy Cellar at the Village Underground in New York, part of a new series called No Laughing Matter. I'm John Donvan, as always, but I could not be there for this one, so I would like to welcome our special guest moderator, Nick Gillespie, who is editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, and he will be hosting and moderating this one. But before we get started, I also want to give you a heads-up for what's coming up. We're going to be at the Homeland Security Enterprise Forum on October 25th, and I will be there for that one. And you're going to hear a debate with former Homeland Security Chief Michael Chertoff and internationally recognized expert on disinformation, Nina Yankovitz, among others, about the era of information disorder that we all seem to find ourselves living through. That's October 25th. You can go to our website, intelligencesquared.org, to reserve tickets and find out more. This should be a good one. So now on to tonight's debate, which is a good one. Here is Nick Gillespie. Nick, let's get to it. This is Intelligence Squared, and this is No Laughing Matter, a new series uh, which they built around my utter lack of humor. So we've got that to look forward to. We're going to be debating unions, and the, the proposition under debate is, do unions work for the economy? This is a, an interesting question because union membership peaked in the United States in 1954 at about 35% of the workforce. It is down now about one in 10 less, or maybe one in 10 workers in the, in the country are unionized now. It's higher in the public sector, and we're going to talk about public sector and private sector. Uh, we're going to talk about why did it decline. And also, interestingly, uh, polls have found that in just in the past couple of years, support for unionization is higher now than it has been since 1965. 71% of people say that unions are, are good or, or they support unions and unionization. We read it in the headlines all the time. Uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about. And I guess before we get going, I'm curious, are there any union members in the audience? <laughs> all right. I'll, I'll speak slower. Uh, joking, but that's a sign of the times. There's about 10 people in the audience and one of them is in a union. So. We're going to be looking forward to that. And I am going to uh, introduce first the person who is arguing, yes, that unions are good for the economy, is the journalist who covered labor for the New York Times for 19 years and has written a book called Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor, Stephen Greenhouse. Please come to the stage and sit to my right. There he is, Stephen Greenhouse. New York Times journalist, covered the unions and the labor markets, author of Beaten Down and Worked Up. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. And now arguing no, unions are not good for the economy, is pension economist, Bloomberg contributor, and senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, Allison Schrager. Please join me on my left. All right. So thank you. Thank you both for joining us. Um, if you have to, uh, you're going to have to go through me if you want to really fight with each other. We want to have a good, clean fight with a lot of facts and a lot of uh, analysis, but no name calling. Are uh, you ready to go, Stephen? Yes. Allison, what about you? Oh, yeah. All right. So what if, don't we first have to do a weigh-in? Uh, you know, we were supposed to do that already. And I broke the scale. So we're skipping that. We're going to go right to the opening statement. Stephen, you have three minutes. Let's get to it. You're up first. You answered yes. Why do you argue that unions work for the economy? Well, our subject is, do unions work for the economy? When some people talk about the economy, they focus on maximizing corporate profits or maximizing the Dow Jones Industrial Average. The economy is about far more than that. The economy is about people and delivering goods and services to make people's lives better. 
Uh, unions make people's lives better. Thanks, for, you know, thanks to unions, many more people are in the middle class. People have retirement plans. People have medical coverage. People have much safer uh, jobs. People have work-life balance that gives them time to, to spend with their family. I often think of the bumper sticker, unions, the folks who brought you the weekend. And many Americans forget how bad many, many jobs used to be. A century ago, 2,000, around 2,000 coal miners died each year on the job. Now only about 10 do. And we really need, need to thank unions for that huge improvement. Sitting here about a mile from the Lower East Side, which used to be the heart of the nation's apparel industry, and tens of thousands of apparel workers you know, worked brutal hours, six days a week, seven days a week, often from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., Right before coming here, I stopped at the uh, what used to be the uh, Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, which is about a five-minute walk just on the other side of Washington Square. At a time when there was very little regulations of workplaces and many employers didn't care, didn't pay much attention to workplace safety, 146 workers died in 1911 in a horrific fire there. Most of them were women. Many of them were teenagers. Now, thanks to unions, factories are infinitely safer, and, and you know, very few people work 80-hour work weeks. During the Great Depression, FDR and the New Deal Congress thought that far too many Americans had very meager wages, and they thought, what do we do about this? So they wanted to increase workers' bargaining power, and they passed a landmark law that made it far easier to unionize. So in the late 1930s and 1940s, millions of Americans flocked into unions, and the powerful unions that they created greatly raised wages and built America's middle class, which was the world's largest middle class, thanks to unions. Many workers could finally afford to buy houses, could finally afford to buy cars. That increased consumer demand, and that in turn helped the over, overall GDP. Um, this summer, as, as Nick mentioned, a recent Gallup poll found that 71% of Americans approve of unions. That means Americans overwhelmingly think that unions work for the economy. Starbucks workers, Chipotle workers, REI workers, Apple workers, museum workers, adjunct professors, graduate students, the, many of them are trying to form unions. Video game workers who are tired of working 80, 90 hours a week, they're trying to form unions. Amazon workers who are fed up with the stress and, and with the onerous uh, production quotas and the difficulty in finding time to go to the bathroom, many of them want to unionize to make their lives saner and happier. And when unions make workers happier and, and, and less stressed out, unions work for the economy. All right. Thank you very much, Stephen Greenhouse. Yes, unions work for the economy. Okay, Allison, uh, you're taking the position that unions don't work for the economy. Take it away. You got three minutes. Hey, so when I was thinking about this question, I realized it's a very complicated question, but for once it actually has a very simple answer. The answer is no. But why is it complicated? Because what does it mean to work for the economy? Now, I'm an economist, and I thought a this isn't a trivial question to me. Traditionally, economists thought working for the economy was rising GDP. And I think that's one way to think about it. But I think we're realizing another really important part of working for the economy is resilience. Not only resilience to the next financial crisis or the next pandemic or recession or inflation or whatever, but also resilience to an economy that's constantly in a state of change. We were once an agrarian economy, then we became an industrial economy. And now we're moving into the next phase, a tech economy. And an economy that works can manage to grow and prosper and still be a leader despite all of these changes. And then finally, I think another thing that's become what matters for working in an economy is that the prosperity is shared. And I think what we're going to find in the next hour or so is that the answer is union doesn't fulfill any of those goals. In fact, it hinders all of them. And that's why they don't, it doesn't work for the economy. Unions, among many other things, make companies a lot less dynamic. It's really hard to fire anyone who's not good at their job. It's really hard to give merit bonuses or pay to people who are good at their jobs. It's really hard to adopt new technology. We saw this with the car manufacturers. We even saw this with Hostess. Remember when they went bankrupt? So it becomes very hard to be a more dynamic workplace. And we also see in the public sector, unions have been a big hindrance to education reform, to um, building infrastructure projects. 
with in any sort of budget or any sort of reasonable timeline, which is a huge bump to taxpayers. Generally, they just make the economy much more sclerotic and a lot less dynamic, which is really, as we're changing, is one big reason why unions really are falling out of favor, not just here, but even abroad, even Europe, big stalwart of unions. They're becoming a lot less popular. So I think it's clear that, well, the question isn't, did unions help some people? Are they good for some people? Yeah, sure, of course they are. But are they good for the economy, which isn't just a few people, but everyone, and not just us, but people in the future? The answer is clearly no. All right. Thank you, Allison. Uh, what we're going to do now for about the uh, next 20 minutes or so, uh, we're, we're going to have a discussion up here about uh, various points about private sector unions. Then we're going to talk about public sector unions. Then we're going to go to audience Q&A. I guess let's start off, uh, and I'll go to Stephen first. If unions are so self-evidently good for the workforce and for the economy, can you talk a little bit about the decline in membership? What are the main causes of that? And what does that say um, about the, um, the, the relevance of unions to, uh, to the labor market today? Uh, in my book, Nick, I write that America, of all the uh, industrial countries in the world, the, the, thir- the three dozen or so OECD countries, the United States, U.S. corporations are the most anti-union, the most aggressively anti-union. So that, to my mind, is one of the major reasons that union density has declined since 1980. Another, But, uh, but the... I mean, just but to that's be clear, one the, the decline the started decline, long before 1980. But, but it really, really accelerated starting okay. 1980. Um, it was slow. So among the other reasons the union, you know, union rate declined is you know, a sharp decline in manufacturing. Many manufacturing jobs moved overseas. Um, official policy kind of soured on unions with, you know, and Ronald Reagan. Uh, fired the air traffic controllers who participated in an illegal strike. It was not a cool, it was an Ill- illegal strike, but that made many, uh, you know, CEOs think, well, it's, it's high time we really go after unions, really, really fight hard against unions. And there's been a growth in the service sector, and uh, it's in many ways harder to unionize bank workers or nail salon workers or restaurant workers than it is to unionize, you know, 10,000 workers in downtown Detroit or Flint, Michigan, working. And also, you know, some unions have fallen asleep on the job. They haven't done enough. But I would argue that overwhelmingly the reason, the, the main reason that, that union density has fallen so much is that corporate America fights so hard, as we're seeing now at Starbucks, you know, fire, you know firing over 100 pro-union workers. Amazon, you know, is fighting very hard against unionization. Uh, Apple is opposing unionization. So I think if you know, there are many times when 80, 90 percent of workers at a worksite sign cards saying we want a union. Then the corporation turns on this, you know, full court anti-union press, you know, with, with videos that are anti-union and screensavers on everyone's computer that are anti-union and phone calls and texts that are anti-union. And suddenly people, you know, some pro-union workers will get fired and workers will get scared. They'll, they'll be told that, you know, our plant might close if you unionize and people feel intimidated. And that's what's happening right now, I think, with Starbucks and Amazon. People start feeling very pro-union, but then the company really twists people's arm and people feel threatened, and they say, well, this is too scary. Maybe we don't want a union. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's get back to our debate. Allison, do you find that convincing, that the decline in membership is fundamentally, it's, it's partly related, I think I'm summarizing Stephen correctly, it is partly related to a change in work, but it's mostly because the ownership of companies is really kind of going after union efforts. I mean, I think the corporate resistance is part of it, but whether or not it's most of it, not at all. I mean, first of all, I mean, when people, we keep throwing around that union 
enthusiasm for unions is at record highs. But if you look at the statistics and break them out by age, picture looks very different. Pretty much they, you know, it's more like 49% if you look at anyone over 50. Because a lot of the enthusiasm for unions are people who are too young to remember what a unionized economy really looks like. When pretty much a lot of people sort of had sort of where you were doing more manual work and it was less skilled and everyone's, um, and it, the work was more routine. Banding together made a lot of sense, as I said, because when you join a union, you give up sort of high pay raises and stuff like that so everyone can have more stability. But in a more sort of tech service driven economy, you sort of want all these sort of merit based pay. So that's why a lot of workers just don't want to be unions and why a lot of union drives are still failing. Hmm. Are you buying that? So I worked at the New York Times as a reporter for 31 years. We were unionized. I and many of my colleagues got merit pay increases. So it's, 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 a, it's a fiction to say that unionized workplaces can't have, have uh, merit, merit pay increases. You know, you know, um, Allison said that you know, unions do very little to increase uh, broadly, uh, based, broadly shared prosperity. I emphatically disagree about that. Unions are really the only institution in American society that try across the board to lift, lift um, living standards, lift pay of all workers. You know, one of the great stories about the 19, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s when unions were strongest and were unionizing many people was all these non-union companies rushed to raise their pay and raise their benefits because they were scared of of being unionized. So there was a huge spillover effect where unionized places help non-union workers. Um, and you know, a big problem in the United States is that so many employers are so emphatically anti-union that they don't want to cooperate with unions. You look at you know, some of the greatest companies in the world are unionized. Diamond-Benz, BMW, Toyota, Honda, Siemens, Sony, Airbus, Boeing. You know, so companies can be unionized and still be very successful. Do you think, um, you know, you're talking about the New York Times, uh, uh, but other more service-oriented places like a Starbucks, like a Chipotle, like Amazon, um, do, is, is there room for the, the owners of those business to um, kind of block unions by giving workers more fringe benefits, more compensation, more uh, flex time and things like that? And is that happening? And does that depress the push for unionization? So right now at Starbucks, you know, uh, Howard Schultz, whom Hillary Clinton wanted to name as labor secretary, right? Howard Schultz is doing his utmost to kill the union drive. And he's done something where he said, we will give increased benefits and raises to our non-union workers. But at the 250 stores where workers have voted to unionize, we're not giving you the raises. We're not giving you the benefits. And, and the union says, that's dirty pool. It's, it's discriminating against people who've unionized, it, and, and it's really scaring the bejesus out about a lot, of, a, a lot of workers say, gee, if I vote for a union, I'm not going to get these, these benefits. And, and, and Starbucks is trying very hard to prevent the union from ever getting a contract, I believe, where they're really dragging things out. So a lot of workers see, you know, um, and, and, you know, Starbucks is giving these benefits to its non-union workers. Uh, it's giving them to its non-union workers, but not to its unionized workers. And workers are saying, maybe it's not a good idea to join a union. Now, other companies, you know, Amazon has increased pay uh, in, many, in many places when it faced a unionization drive. And that's very, very common. You know, unions, even when they don't succeed, often raise pay. You know, once upon a time, when I was about 25 years old, I was a reporter at the Bergen Record in Hackensack, New Jersey, and I was involved in a union drive. And on a Friday night, you know, about 100 people signed up to go to a restaurant you know, to push for the union. And that Friday afternoon on the bulletin board magically appeared a notice from the CEO saying, everyone's getting a 25% raise. And like, you know, that, you know, we were very happy. And I should note that, you know, the CEO who owned the paper, you know, had his five Mercedes Benz and, and he probably didn't need all this money. And that wasn't, you know, his, the, all the money going to him wasn't going to help the economy so much. But, you know, that increase in pay going to me, who was making then $150 a week and working like 60, 70 hours a week, the increase in pay that many union members get really boosts the economy and it creates 
broadly shared prosperity in a way that little else does. Did that 25% raise uh, stop the union effort? Yes, it did. All right. So, mm-hmm. But everybody wins. Then. Arguably, or, yes. In that yes, case. fair enough. Yeah. People are pretty happy, yes. Um, uh, Allison, let me ask you, what is the role of unionization efforts or a threat of unionization in increasing compensation, wages and benefits and things like that, perks for workers versus other parts of the economy? Because we are now going through a phase where wages are going up uh, pretty quickly for you know in in a in a in a way that we haven't seen in a long time um, is that because of fundamentally or primarily is that because of fears of unionization or what's going on with you no I mean that's largely because we have a very tight labor market and there's a shortage of workers I mean workers can be empowered a lot of different ways it doesn't necessarily have to be from unions it can be from having sort of useful skills it can be as we see right now sort of a shortage of labor and I'd also disagree with the idea that unions are the only institution that share prosperity. I mean, we have the government that, you know, has a lot of sort of, you know, social redistributive programs. And I mean, I think unions before the, you know, we had those institutions in place from the government unions did, I will admit, pay a very important role, especially in terms of standards for workplace safety. But the fact is we now have a government that does a lot of that role. And so, and I think it's better placed on the government than on employers because it opens it up to sort of more hiring. There's also evidence that, you know, a more unionized industry does create fewer jobs because jobs get more expensive. And, you know, the money does have to come from somewhere. Uh, Stephen, let's talk about the relationship between uh, unions increasing wages and compensation, which is a cost, right, of doing business. Does that have an effect on unemployment or on the number of workers that a company might hire otherwise? Yes, it does. I mean, you know, when something's more expensive, someone might might buy less of it. When when uh, workers pay as much higher, you know, an employer might hire fewer people. However. You know, I, I just want to add one more quote about broadly shared prosperity. Sure. Uh, this is from uh, someone we've all heard of, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Uh, the labor movement was the principal force that transformed misery and despair into hope and progress. Out of its bold struggles, economic and social reform gave birth to unemployment insurance, old age pensions, government relief for the destitute, and above all, new wage levels that meant not mere survival, but a tolerable life. The captains of industry did not lead this transformation. They, re- they resisted it until they were overcome. And Allison's right. Government does some redistribution, does promote broadly shared prosperity, but it's often because unions push it to do far more. Unions push it to pass Social Security and pass Medicaid and raise the minimum wage and improve uh, you know, uh, funding for child care. Is that... Is is unionism the primary uh, driver of increased wages then? I mean, pay, pay increases for a lot of different reasons. In the, I would agree that in the 50s and the 60s, unions did have a role in increasing pay. I mean, you have to remember the 50s and the 60s were a very different time. After the post-war era, I mean... All, like all of Europe, they, they really had to rebuild. So really, the U.S. was the manufacturing center of the world, which gave companies an enormous benefit and all these profits, which they had to share with their workers. We don't have that now. It's a much more competitive global economy. So right now, if you do get big pay increases, it's usually a reflection of your skills. And another reason why unions make less sense now is it's a lot easier to monitor people in a workplace and see who's the most productive and who is not. And so people tend to sort of, that tends to drive pay now more than it used to. Can you just explain that a little bit more? What, what do you mean? Well, for instance, like Major League Baseball. Um, you know, as I said, you know all the whole money ball thing, which means like you can use data to figure out, and this is true whether you're on a factory floor or playing baseball, of who is the most productive person, who's the one who's adding the most value. When you, before, you know, no one ever really knew, even in baseball. I mean, although it seems odd to me because you can just watch people play, but apparently data has really changed this. And it's true in all industries. So you can monitor who's more productive than not and, and sort of compensate them accordingly. When you really had no idea who was productive and who wasn't, there's a much bigger incentive for everyone to unionize because if you were a high productivity worker, you may as well just throw your lot in with everyone else so you can get more stability. Now, that stability is also less important because actually uh, in average tenure has been on the rise anyway unions has been on the fall. Like Job stability isn't this huge concern it used to be. In fact, the bigger problem is that people aren't changing jobs enough because job changes are usually what brings pay raises. Hmm. Stephen, yeah, go ahead. So, you know, Allison said before that you know, young people support unions because they don't know all the bad things about unions that, that their parents and grandparents know. I think a lot of young people support unions because they see 
you know, we're a nation with huge income inequality, the worst income inequality in this century. You know, young people are hearing that their generation will be the first generation in American history to do worse than their parents. And yes, they're all told, go to medical school, go to law school, get an MBA. But, you know, every high school class has a bottom 50%, and not all of them are going to get MBAs and become lawyers. And a lot of people realize, how am I going to pull myself up? I'd love to do it by my own bootstraps. I'm way down by $50,000 in, 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 um, in college loans. I can hardly afford to rent. I'm living with my parents. A union might be a way for me at Starbucks to go from $15 an hour to $20 an hour. So I think a lot of young people see unions as one thing they could hold on to, you know, to pull them up. Professor Columbia, Alex Hertel Fernandez, recently did a big study saying that 74% of Americans age 18 to 24 want to join unions. 75% of Hispanic Americans say they join a union if they could. 80% of African Americans say they, could join, they would join a union if they could. 84% of African American women. So clearly, a lot of people who you know, who want to lift themselves up, many of whom are struggling, see unions as the way to go. And, and I just want to add that, you know, I agree with Allison that, you know, after World War II, many American companies were doing extremely well when the Europe, Europeans and the Japanese economy were, were on their backs. But, you know, American companies weren't rushing to give good wages and benefits to their workers. It took some big ugly historic strikes to squeeze GM and Ford and Chrysler to really cough up the middle class wages that built that built the middle class and really made America you know the American people you know the richest people on earth now you know the, the period from 1945 1950 or so to 1980 or so was called the great compression really the only sustained time in modern American history when inequality decreased but since 1980 inequality has significantly increased. I was just looking at some numbers. Since uh, the bottom 90% of Americans have, you know, I think their share of the economy has dropped from around 66% to about 55%. And the top 10% has gone from, my numbers are going to be off like 35% to about 45%. My numbers don't quite add up. But so as unions have weakened, inequality has increased. Now, Allison's going to add, well, because she's so intelligent. Let, you know, let's globalization let her, is also a factor. Yeah, let's, let's let her answer for herself, though. Um, you know, so Stephen, Stephen uh, you know, raises the question of the relationship between union, unionization and inequality. Um, and there's no question that, you know, after World War II until sometime in the 70s, wages compressed, uh, inequality lessened, is what is the relationship of the unionization of the workforce to that phenomenon? Uh, and does the decrease in unions in unionization explain a growing inequality in America? No, I, th I don't believe it's causal, which means I don't think the unions caused that. I think what brought down unions and what increased inequality was the same thing, which was more globalization and what we call skill bias technical change. It's just where the economy changed and it really did favor sort of high and high skill workers more than everyone else. And that's also to some degree what undermined unions because it made sort of paying lower skill for routine jobs a lot harder and encouraged mechanization in a lot of companies. Although I totally I agree with Stephen that like it's I think we pretty much have the economy figured out for high skill people. I think people who, as I said, you know, aren't on that path do need more help. I think that's absolutely true. I just don't think unions are the best way to help them anymore. Uh, Stephen, can I ask you, you, you paint a picture of kind of the historical role of unions in, in bringing up wages and things like that. But then you were talking about, uh, you know, auto workers say, in the post-war era when uh, there was not a lot of competition within the United States, um, auto manufacturers could pay their workers more and then pass the increase in price onto their customers. Allison has raised the specter of we're in a global economy now. Uh, you know, certainly GM, Ford, you know, Ford is not even making cars anymore. Chrysler is not really a major manufacturer anymore. Everything has become globalized. So is it true that at least when it comes to manufacturing, uh, you know, we're, we're in a global uh, work, uh, you know, environment now. So you're not going to see the ability of major industrial firms or large groups of workers being able to squeeze that kind of uh, increase in compensation out of their employers. It's certainly true that, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, when the American auto industry was king, 
you know, and, and American auto workers are making, you know, high, high wages uh, comparatively on a global scale, you know, things are looking good. But as, as Allison said, you know, in Germany and, and Japan, we built its economies that had all this new, new capital stock and, and its workers are paid less. It was much harder for American car manufacturers to, to, to compete. You know, they had lousy models. Uh, they, their, they, their models weren't sturdily built and their, and their wages were higher. And, and you know, we became un uncompetitive. But let's not forget that you know, the main competitors that are beating the butt of American car makers are unionized. So unionized firm, you know, Daimler-Benz, Volkswagen, you know, Volkswagen you know, has its problems, BMW, you know, Nissan, Toyota, you know, these are unionized companies. So it's wrong to think that just because something is unionized, it can't be competitive. Yeah, um, can I ask you, Allison, to respond to uh, the fact that Denmark, Finland, and Sweden, to name three Scandinavian countries, they have about a 65% unionization rate in their workforce. Uh, but all of them also rank higher in the than the United States in global indices of economic freedom and of global competitiveness. So is unionization actually a problem in either broader economic freedom or being able to compete with other countries? Well, I think it's worth noting all those countries' union rates have also been falling steadily. Um, unionization in Sweden 20 years ago was about 80%, now it's 60%. So, I mean, that's a pretty dramatic decline, and I think shows that the global economy is moving away from unions. All right. Um, I, yes. I just want to chime in. So... Um, I wrote, I wrote a lot about the fight for 15 a few years ago, and I remember meeting a uh, fast food worker from Denmark who came, came to New York, and I ended up, after meeting that, that work, I ended up working on a story with my uh, New York Times colleague in, 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 in Paris, Liz Alderman, and we did a piece saying, why is it that fast food workers in Denmark average more than $20 an hour, whereas at this time, six, seven, eight years ago, fast food workers in the United States averaged $8.50 an hour? And Big Macs cost only a, f a smidgen more in Denmark. And it was because workers in Denmark had far more bargaining power and there's sectoral bargaining. And basically, fast food workers in the U.S. had very little bargaining power. And, and you know, and the, the Danish worker had, you know, had much more paid vacation, had paid sick days, learned, learned her schedule like three, four weeks in advance, whereas a lot of American workers don't learn their schedule three days in advance. So, again, there's something, you know, I, so I was a New York Times reporter covering labor for 19 years, and I tried being scrupulously fair as between, you know, business and, and labor. But like 10 years into the beat, I was seeing something really broken in the U.S. economy. Uh, this was like in the early 2000, 2001, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, you know, corporate profits keep reaching record levels year after year. The stock market was climbing to record levels. Productivity per hour per worker kept reaching record levels, but uh, wages absolutely stagnated. Many corporations were getting rid of good defined benefit pensions and replacing them with much cheaper, much riskier 401ks. Many companies were, were getting much stingier on their healthcare plans. So why is it when corporations are doing so fantastically well that they're squeezing their workers so badly? I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. More when we return. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. Let's get back to our debate. Stephen raises a good point, which is that, you know, profits have been very good, uh, but wages don't necessarily seem to keep pace with that. What is the answer to that, if not, you know, that we need a stronger labor movement in order to take some of the money that goes to the owners and shareholders of businesses and put them in the pockets of the people who are actually bringing those profits? Well, actually, I know 
profits are higher than normal, but that is sort of aggregate profits. When you actually drill down a little bit more into the data, you see that there's a couple companies, we call them superstar companies, that are, dominate each industry and are extraordinarily profitable. But most other industry companies in that industry have very thin margins. And the evidence also suggests that these sort of super profitable companies pay their workers incredibly well. So I think that's part of the disconnect. Also, I mean, you might wonder then, well, why are wages becoming a smaller share of profits? Well, that's also because it's how we are measuring profits. Um, all, when you actually account for uh, capital depreciation and foreign profits, we see that actually the um, worker share of profit is about stable. So it really, when you dig into the data, you see, one, a lot of firms aren't very productive, and that's why they're not paying their workers as much, those who are due. And... Also, as I said, that this sort of like small labor share is actually not really a, depends on how you measure profitability. All right, let's talk about public sector unions. Uh, and there is about 35% of the public sector workforce is unionized. So it's doing much better than the roughly 6% of the private sector market. Uh, Stephen, let's start with you. Is there a qualitative difference to union, the, the union presence and kind of the union reality in the public sector and the private sector? And if so, what is it? You know, private sector unions are kind of more oppositional. They say, you know, the man is making all these profits. The billion dollar investors are, you know, making off all this money, which should be going to higher wages. And I think there's generally more tension and they feel that there's something broken and unfair in the economy with all this income inequality and, and, and you know, stock market soaring until recently. And they said, why are wages, why, why for decades are wages stagnating? That's changed in the last two, three years. So it was more adversarial. I, I, in the public sector, you know, unions, you know, they're not, you know, they don't see, you know, the government as, as the bad guy, as, as the bad person. You know, they kind of want to work with the government and they want to make government work better. But there are, of course, tensions as well because unions will often want, you know, of course, higher wages. And, and, and that's really squeezing the taxpayer and that it's much more politically delicate if you're a public sector union president than if you're a private sector union president. What explains, you know, such a higher rate of unionization in the public sector than the private sector, though? Well, this ties back to what I was saying earlier. In the private sector, the employers are super aggressively opposing unions, much more so in Germany and France and Sweden and Japan. And whereas in in the public sector, there's, you know, one state's grant workers the right to bargain. And under the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, which gave American workers a federally protected right to unionize, that only covered private sector workers, not public sector workers. So each state has to decide whether to give its public sector workers a right to unionize. So once a state gives them the right, generally, you know, mayors and, and, and city council presidents don't fight against the union. And also, you know, unions sometimes give, don't, often give donations to politicians so the politicians you know, don't fight against them. And that's, that's, that can be very okay. complicated. Allison, what do, you know, what is the difference between public and private sector unionization and where does that lead uh, in terms of, you know, outcomes for the economy, not necessarily for the particular workers, but the economy? Well, I mean, it's terrible. I mean, it also corrupts our political process. I mean, unions are amongst the biggest donors. Um, sort of former teachers are sitting on school boards. They really, one of the reasons why there's not this adversarial uh, relationship is you, unions say to the politicians, is like, I can get you elected or not. So they actually... <laughs> I'm so, not so exactly <laughs> sure what that clapping signifies, but I'm, I'm nervous. I made I a good that. point. Right. <laughs> this, you know. So, but as I said, I think we show up in terrible ways the economy. I mean, honestly, I think this proposition is answered just by the school shutdown for the last year, which unions had a big role in, which deprived especially a lot of poor children of education, which they're never going to recover from. I mean, that's terrible for the economy. Okay. Stephen, talk to that, because one of one of the arguments against unions in the private or the public sector is that it makes it makes workplaces and the economy less responsive to changes in reality or in consumer demand. That does seem to be the case with schools, right? That, you know, we want different types of schools, but it's hard to do that if unions are saying, no, we're not going to do that. So, again, many studies have found, you know, states 
you know, that are high, that have, you know, where the teachers union, where teachers are highly unionized, they have better education results by and large than states where, te- where there isn't much union density among teachers. Teachers. And uh, I'm sorry, just to put a, yeah. a face on that. So a state like Massachusetts, Massachusetts does very well. Oregon, Washington, New York, and they, New Jersey, and they have then relatively. Mississippi, Louisiana. Okay. I think teachers unions got the message a few years ago that you have to work harder to improve schools. And they de-emphasized trying to raise pay, and they really emphasized improving schools. And the teachers' unions have made it easier to get rid of bad teachers. Some might, some might argue it's still too tough, but they've gone a long way to make it easier to get rid of bad teachers. Um, you know, we've seen these recent strikes you know, a few weeks ago in, in, in Minnesota, a few weeks ago in Columbus, Ohio, uh, a few years ago in LA and Chicago, where the unions are pushing for more nurses, more school nurses, more librarians, more school counselors, uh, better class sizes. You know, the LA strike, they're protesting uh, class sizes of 38, 40, 42. The Arizona teacher strike, um, you know, I interviewed a teacher, second year teacher who's making $34,000 a year. How many of you would want to go teach for $34,000 a year? So there, there were real problems in the schools. And, you know, yes, there are school boards where things are too cozy between the union and, 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 and the school board. I totally agree, Allison. But there are many school boards which are dominated by the Koch brothers' money and, and Walton brothers' money. You know, they want to shrink the state and they don't want to give enough money to, to unions. And, and, you know, the big historic teacher strikes in 2018 in West Virginia, Oklahoma, and, and Arizona, and all three states... There were very conservative legislatures that all voted big tax cuts for the rich, big tax cuts for corporations, big tax cuts for fracking, and they didn't leave enough money for the schools. And, and certainly in those states, the unions did not control the state legislatures, and the unions said, we have to change this because what the le- state legislature is doing is really bad for, for our children and our schools. Very quickly, Allison, do you, uh, just, do you want to talk about other types of public sector unions, because police unions, firemen unions, prison guard unions in California are very powerful. What kind of, uh, do they exert a positive or, or negative influence on the economy? Absolutely not. I mean, police have stood in the way of law of police reform. As you point out in California, the prison union were one of the big uh, sort of pushers for the three strikes law, which increased a lot of sort of imprisonment and committed and committed mass incarceration. Also, I mean, back to the teachers. I mean, one of the reasons why their pay is so low is that, you know, the um, public sector unions have lobbied a lot for sort of very expensive public sector pensions, which are, one, bankrupting Illinois, but also means that you can't pay young teachers as much, which makes it a lot harder to recruit high-quality, energetic young teachers because all of their pay is backloaded, and that's all... and sort of this makes it really higher to retain high quality public services. Also, I think we also should bring up sort of the costs that public that unions and public sector unions are putting on building infrastructure. We've all read those horrific stories about how we have the most expensive subway construction costs in the world. We hire four people for every one job they do everywhere else. But we have the best looking subway riders, at least in New York. <laughs> But, but, okay, but Alice, subway right. construction well, in other countries yeah. is also highly unionized. So there's something dysfunctional about management. But in not, the but not yeah. the management. That's the difference. Like, and uh, the, sort of, they they might have the sort of people who build the tunnels be unionized. But every level of is is unionized in New York. Um, let's go to the audience Q and A. If you uh, want to, uh, please line up over here. So uh, first question, please. Um, yeah, I have a question for Allison. Um, so you said that terms of private sector unions, that the force that prevents, you know, harm to worker happiness, uh, depressed wages is, should be the government, which feels like it's nice to say, but like we're not Scandinavia, we don't have universal health care. We have a lot of uh, forces working against our government, making our... Okay, uh, so the question is... So what prevents a race to the bottom, like for companies, like why, what prevents them from paying less when they have no shortage of workers? Thank you. Um, well, right now they do have a shortage of re- workers. And actually one of the forces against universal health care is unions. Uh, could you explain that briefly? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, no. well, I mean, as I said, they were against sort of the tax on Cadillac plans. I mean, one of their big benefits that they give to their constituents is good health plans. So it sort of undermines their value when we would, if we had government-sponsored health care. Can, can I just disagree? You know, unions yeah, sure. are overwhelmingly for universal health coverage. They opposed the high tax, the tax on expensive health plans. That's true. But that's a different issue but that's how we from opposing... It. There are many. That's that was not the way we were going to pay for universal health coverage. That would have to be done by you know broader broader taxes overall. 
next question, please. Sure. Um, you guys talked a lot about the automotive industry and manufacturing in America, and you mentioned a bunch of companies that you have largely unionized workforces in Japan and in, um, in Germany, but many of those companies have brought manufacturing to America in the South where they've intentionally targeted markets that don't have unions and make you know, the automakers in Detroit even more uncompetitive. Um, how do you feel about that dynamic and the impact it has on the, on the Rust Belt? Uh, let's uh, start with Stephen. So, uh, you know, the German automakers, the Japanese automakers, the Korean automakers, they're very, very successful being very unionized where they are. And they have to, you know, it's much easier to unionize in Germany and Japan than it is in the U.S. So they come to the U.S. and they say, gee, we could live with, you know, we, we're not being pressured to have a union. We can make more profits this way. So they, you know, in, in, in a... In a in an anti-union country where it's very hard to unionize for all sorts of reasons, um, you know, they say, let's, let's take the low-road anti-union route, and we'll, it will make it easier for us, us to undercut the Detroit, unionized Detroit automakers. Is that good for the economy? We understand why they do it. Is it good for the economy? Yes, yes, yes and no. I mean, uh, it creates jobs. That's good. Uh, you know, it will help shareholders in, in Japan and Germany. Uh, you know, would the workers say, well, gee, I wish I made $28 an hour rather than $20 an hour, and, and would that increase, would that help create more, you know, broader prosperity? Yes. So, yes, it's good to create jobs, but I think it would be better if the workers are paid more, which would help create broader prosperity. Um, can I just make, yes, make, a, make a point there that in 2009, those factories were still profitable and didn't need a bailout while the automakers in Detroit did. All right. Thank you. Next question, please. Hi. Um, at one time, I worked for a nonprofit healthcare um, in HR, so I wasn't unionized, but the employees were. And one of the complaints was that the more money they made every year, the more money they paid in union fees. And so I was just curious um, if either of you know that ratio of um, as pay might increase, what what is being paid out to union fees, and if that helps the economy. Um, anyone? Unions charge dues. They, they are institutions that need money to run. Uh, some charge a flat $25 a month or $50 a month. So, some charge 1% of pay or 1.5% of pay. And as your pay go up, goes up, your dues will go up and the union will say, perhaps justly, perhaps not, we helped increase your pay and so you should you know, stay paying the 1%. And, and you know, some workers are very happy to do it and some workers are unhappy with their union dues. And, and you know, this study came out yesterday um, saying that unionized workers over their lifetime earn $1.3 million more than non comparable non-union workers. And, and, you know, I tweeted this out and someone said, well, what about union dues? And I said, you know, if you pay $1,000 to $1,500 in union dues per year times a 40-year career, that's $40,000, $60,000. That's a lot less than $1.3 million. I will also question the 1.3 million. It sounds a little yeah. high, Allison. Yeah. Okay. Well, is that well, um, for the whole eco- is that for the whole economy or comparable it's, industries? It's, it's for the whole economy. Well, um, well yeah. I mean, because you have more white collar union workers, unions who are working now. Let's go to the next question. Thank you very much. How much would you say that modern technology empowers workers more now? Naturally, you know, they they can find jobs more easily. They can shame their employers on social media or praise them for good conditions. Uh, so that uh, it puts natural pressure on employers to improve conditions and therefore makes unions less necessary than they might have been in the past. Thank you. Allison, you want to go first? I think they definitely do. I said I think workers are getting power from all sorts of places. And also technology also isn't so great for unions too because, you know, if you make now, I mean, before, as I said, in the 60s, there wasn't a lot of competition. Now there's not only foreign competition, but if you make sort of the cost of labor way too high, then you can also just turn to technology. So it can be powerful, but if you, or it could be very sort of a danger to workers, particularly for you. Stephen, yeah. Great question. And, and uh, it really cuts both ways. I, I agree with Allison. You know, one way, you know, it, it empowers workers because if you want to organize, you could do it by social media, you could do it by Zoom. It in ways makes unionizing easier. You know, it's harder for the boss to like look over your back uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, uh, greater technology means you're, you know, 
you're competing now with, with you know, bright people in Russia or Ukraine or, or Japan or Singapore who could take away your job from you. You know, the New York Times had this great front page story a few weeks ago by Jody Cantor about algorithmic management where, you know, cameras and sensors, you know, tell, you know, you're working at home and they tell, you know, you know, whether you're at your computer, you know, every minute, every hour, and if you go away to the bathroom and then the camera snaps your picture, then you're not there, you might get paid for that hour. And I see that unions in, in Norway and Germany are saying there's something broken with algorithmic management. It's driving a lot of workers crazy. It's stressing them out. And we, the unions, want to step up to try to make this more humane and fairer so that workers aren't fired improperly for that. All right. Let's go to the next question. Hey, uh, you've talked a lot about the differences between now and, say, uh, in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, so I'm wondering what the parallels are now, though, uh, compared to that time with rightward shifts uh, in the U.S. and Scandinavia. Uh, we're now more of a service economy, as you've mentioned, but uh, compared to a manufacturing economy. But what are the similarities between now and then, which you've said, you know, started the need for unions in the first place? Thank you very much. Uh, Allison, you want to go first? Well, I think it's also a time of great change and change makes people uncomfortable. So, I mean, to some degree, I think that was what was attractive about unions is there was a sense of community there. But as I said, like, unfortunately now for the way the economy is changing, becoming more globalized, more technical, it doesn't really confer the same benefits. And as I said, people can find community elsewhere or to some degree as well are looking for different things from their work. Thank you. Stephen, anything back to that? As we were discussing, the 1950s was kind of a rising tide for America. Corporations were doing very well and they had money to share with their workers and the workers really pressured them into sharing with their workers. Now, you know, we're in a more competitive world um, and one might say, well, that's a reason, you know, not to favor unions, but, you know, corporate profits have been way up. The stock market until recently was way up. Income inequality is way up. You know, you look at these charts showing that since union density started to fall in 1980, well, from, from 1945 to 1980, basically productivity per hour rose, compensation per hour rose at basically the exact same rate as productivity per hour. Since 1980, with unions declining, productivity has risen three times as fast generally as compensation per hour. So I think a lot of workers could say, we are not getting our share fair of the pie. And and, and even though the world is more competitive, we still need to unionize. Uh, I want to thank Allison Schrager and Stephen Greenhouse for debating for Intelligence Squared in our No Laughing Matter series at the Village Underground of the Comedy Cellar. Thank you so much for parsing out whether or not unions work for the economy. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared, which is made possible by a generous grant from the Laura and Gary Lauder Venture Philanthropy Foundation. As a nonprofit, our work to combat extreme polarization through the civil and respectful debate we present is generously funded by listeners like you, by the Rosencrantz Foundation, and by Friends of Intelligence Squared. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Clea Connor is CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Julia Melfi and Marlette Sandoval are our producers. Leah Matho is our consulting producer. Damon Whittemore and Kristen Muller are our radio producers. Andrew Lipson is director of production. Raven Baker is our events operations manager. I'm your host, John Donvan, and this episode is guest hosted by Nick Gillespie. We'll see you next time. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big-